All right. Good morning, Transit family. How's everyone doing today? Good, good. Glad you can make it. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here at the Transit. And as the slide shows today, guess what uh, book of the Bible we're going to be diving into for the next few months? Chronicles. You're right. Chronicles is where. <laughs> Ephesians. Yeah. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 2. That's where we're going to be uh, at today. Uh, Ephesians is kind of like a fine wine. You don't rush through Ephesians. You take your time. And so we're going to be, uh, Lord willing, we'll be in this book until uh, October. So buckle up, get cozy. Um, it's going to be a good time. What is Ephesians? Ephesians is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul. He wrote it from prison uh, around 61 to 62 AD, and he wrote it to the new believers in and around Ephesus. And Ephesians is one of those letters, those books of the Bible that is uh, essentially the field manual for the Christian life. In chapters 1 through 3, you kind of get the indicative of the Christian life. In chapters 4 through 6, you get the imperative. The indicative is identity. This is, I am a saint. I am a blood-bought child of God. This is who I am all because of who God is and what he's done for me in Christ Jesus. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, we're not told to do anything but one time. There's one command in the first three chapters. And then Ephesians 4 through 6 is a life of response to the grace that's been shown to you. And how the imperative, the, the, the way we live our lives is simply a response to the grace we've been shown in Christ Jesus. So, few thoughts. Who here, uh, this doesn't have anything to do with my sermon, but I wanted to address it because I've gotten a lot of people uh, excited about this or asking me about my thoughts on the Asbury revival. Everyone kind of know what's happening with that? Okay, no. Okay, so, oh, some people are shaking their heads. No. Okay, so. It's all over the secular news, which is awesome, and social media. And Asbury University is a Christian university, and I think it was like roughly 10 days ago, a little bit over 10 days ago, they had a chapel that just, the service just never stopped. So I watched, actually, I'd encourage you to watch the opening message. It wasn't anything powerful or anything, whatever, but like, it was awesome. The message was all about us receiving the love and operating out of that love we've received. And so they've been worshiping and praying and kind of having this just uh, meeting to pursue God's presence for 10 days now. And uh, all the YouTube uh, podcasters are putting in their two cents. Should we be for this? Should we be against this? What should our thoughts be? All that stuff. So let me just say this. Being a lead pastor now for two years, on the heels of 2020, this is the first time I've been able to stand before you today and mention something that CNN is covering with a smile on my face and saying, thank you, God, for good news. All right? So I'm personally so thankful for that, that it's young college students not burning cities to the ground in rage and resentment, uh, uh, wrapped up in, in ideological madness, but it's, it's, it's college students sitting before Jesus and worshiping him, and there's public confession and, and repentance. It's, it's beautiful. We cheer that on. I say, thank you, Jesus. For that, And our response should be this, it, it shouldn't matter what I say or what uh, some uh, theologian says or a podcaster says, what does God say about this? God, what do you think about this? And that was something that I was, you know, I wanted to, to wrestle with as I researched it. I really didn't know much about it until a lot of people started hitting me up about it, and then I, I you know, I'm not, I don't, not a news junkie. Um, and I had a dream, I'm not saying the dream was from the Lord, but it was really symbolic, and it came on the heels of me asking, God, I'm tired of listening to everyone online, what they have to say about it, what do you have to say about this? And then I had this dream, and I wrote it down, and I remembered it. And I was really simple, really short. I was leading a prayer and worship night with my family, with my kids. I was on my guitar, played acoustic guitar, not anywhere near anyone else here on stage, how they can play. Um, but I play some deep tracks, like open, open the eyes of my heart, okay? So if you ever hear us play one of the deep tracks, it's because I suggested that Caleb play it, okay? So if you enjoyed it, you can thank me for it. If you didn't like it, don't blame Caleb, blame me. All right. So I'm playing this worship song. My oldest daughter is six. And um, she is so full of love and affection for Jesus. And her, her eyes are watering in this dream. Her eyes are watering up with tears. And she can't get the words out with how much joy she has in knowing Jesus. And I see that's her heart of just pure, unfiltered devotion. Doesn't even know how to put it in theologically orthodox terms. But just welling up inside of her. And then I start crying as a father. And then the dream ends. I think if that's what's happening with these students in Asbury, we say yes and amen. Thank you, God. So the only hesitation I have is I think revival is a massive term and a massively important term, and it's a historical term. 
and we're only 10 days into this, and I think history will tell, like, what a revival is. Like, I think history dictates that. So I think, uh, you know, fruit takes time to grow and to, to show. But I think this is a move of God. I think the Spirit of God is all over this. And for me in my house, and this is why I'm getting, why I'm sharing this, is it's not just what God thinks, but what will my response be? It's not what is my stance. We need to stop that nonsense. What's your stance on this? What's your stance on this? What's your stance? What is my response going to be? What, Lord, is there a message here? As for me in my house, I'm saying, Lord, would you fan into flame affections in my heart again for you? Would you help me to be a man who's a man of prayer, who loves your presence, who will turn off TV and so on and so forth? And after I woke up, had that dream that Friday night, I had a prayer and worship night with, uh, with my kids. It was awesome. All three of them lined up, opened the eyes of my heart for two hours. Just kidding. Um, but I was like, hey, let Asbury, what if Asbury is the spark that this nation needs to reignite just a sincere, genuine passion for the Lord, right? And let that be. Let, let, let that be our response. That, hey, whatever's happening in Asbury, you don't need to buy a one-way ticket and just, just live there for you know, seven days. Like, go to work, do whatever. But at the same time, does, what I'm asking is, God, do you have all of me, my affections, my heart? And that leads us to Ephesians. So I just wanted to say, that's our official stance. I get to say, jump up and down, that CNN is talking about a move of God, and that's amazing. And college students are, are on fire for Jesus, not setting dumpsters on fire, okay? So, like, that's, we champion that. We say yes and amen. And we don't need to get into all the debates about, oh, well, time will tell, like, all that stuff. We say yes and amen. Thank you, God. And as for me and my house, let me join in, not because they're doing it, but because they're looking at someone who's worth pursuing, Okay? And that's what Ephesians is all about. So to Ephesians, I gotta, <laughs> gotta hurry up here. Serious theme is this, between two worlds. That's the theme we're going with, between two worlds. And if you've been a follower of Jesus for longer than a minute and a half, you know that we walk in a constant kind of tug of war and tension in our heart between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and King Jesus and, and everything this world and the flesh and the demonic are offering to us. We simultaneously are like the believers in Ephesus. We simultaneously live in two locations. We live in Christ, and we live in Ephesus. We are citizens of heaven, and the majority of us, if you look at your passport, citizens of America, American citizens. And so then the million-dollar question is, how then do you live in Christ while you're still located in Ephesus? And I think that's what Ephesians is all about. Anyone listen to Joshua Garrels? Josh Garrels, I don't know what Joshua said. Josh Garrels, the, the musician, Christian musician. Some of you kind of hesitant. Is he still cool? Uh, he's not really that cool anymore. But uh, he was cool when I was in college. Anyways, he has a song called Farther Along. He didn't write it, but he did like a remix. And uh, I wanted to share this couple lyrics from his song that I think perfectly encapsulate uh, the Christian life. Maybe not perfectly, but you get what I'm saying. But still, I get hard pressed on every side. Between the rock and a compromise, if you sing it, know it. So if you, say, if, you, if you know it, sing it. Like truth and a pack of lies fighting for my soul. Okay, let's stop right there. I love that line, that truth and a pack of lies are fighting for my soul. Like that's what it means to live between two worlds. That's what it means to be in Christ Jesus, united to him by faith, and yet the war and the flesh and the devil still raging, battling against you. Truth and a pack of lies fighting for your soul. That's the tension. Then he continues and he says this. I've got no place left to go. Sorry, you too. I found what I'm looking for. It's what he's saying there. Uh, deep reference there. All right. Because I got changed by what I've been shown. It's more glory than the world has known. And it keeps me rambling on. The line I want to hone in on, and I think is what the book of Ephesus, the letter to the Ephesian believers is all about, is us being changed by what we've been shown. If we were to ask, how do we change? How does the gospel change us? We first have to see something and not just see it. We have to articulate it and understand it accurately. There's a difference between sight, seeing something, and perceiving it as something of worth and of value. Like, I see this cup of coffee. This is not in my notes. I see this cup of coffee. You all see this cup of coffee. But all of us disagree on the value of that. I have a high value of that cup and what's in that cup. Some of you are like, that's disgusting. It's coffee. I don't like coffee. And we'll pray for you, Okay. But so for me, we all see this, but what we need is the perception of its actual worth and value. And what I'm getting at, the reason I wanted to sing this song to open up our sermon series, Open the Eyes of My Heart, is because I would articulate, I'm not taking this from like Sinclair Ferguson or a biblical scholar, this is just your pastor's thoughts, so take that with a grain of salt. But I think the thesis statement of uh, Paul's letter to uh, the believers at Ephesians is this right here in Ephesians 1, 16 through 18. 
He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Watch this. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Why? That you may know, have an accurate understanding of what is the hope to which he has called you. This is all going somewhere. Our future, it looks very, very, very bright. It looks like the glory of God forever. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? It's hard to say those lines without shouting. And just, oh, let's dissect this. No, no, let's believe this. Let's let, let, let something happen internally as we hear the truth of the gospel and what Jesus has done. And so this is written, this letter is written to believers. And Paul is saying, my prayer for you, believers at Ephesus, and we're going to talk about the whole story of Ephesus. My prayer and the purpose with this letter is you all have to see what I see. Do you see what I see? Do you know the Jesus that I know? Because when you do and when you know him, it changes everything with how you live in Ephesus. It changes everything about what Ephesus says. It, it, it weakens the lies of Ephesus. It weakens the lie of the American dream. It weakens the lie of anxiety, of wealth and comfort and everything else that the devil can throw your way. It weakens it when you can see the Christ of glory Greatly, And so this is a beautiful reminder for the next few months as we're diving into Ephesians, the Holy Spirit through the word saying, behold your king and everything he's accomplished for you. And as we fix our gaze on Jesus and we pray, God, help me to see rightly. That's what I was praying when I'm praying, open the eyes of my heart. I'm actually praying to God. I'm saying, God, would you help me? I, sh I surely haven't got this whole thing figured out. I surely haven't just gotten an, all that I need of your glory in my life. You know, I, all of your love. Maybe I have a holy discontentment in my heart. And so this is written to Christians. And the reason why it's written to Christians is we're quick to forget. We're, we're easily distracted. We have gospel amnesia where we just simply forget the beauty of our inheritance, the, the wonders of knowing Jesus and the power of his presence with us. And we're so quick to forget. Yesterday I had my kids in the car in the afternoon we're leaving my parents house and I'm going to one of my favorite coffee shops foundation coffee highly recommend it. it's awesome and uh I so badly needed coffee because my brain was all fuzzy I went the wrong way which I grew I grew up in Fairfax it's really embarrassing okay so I went the wrong way the coffee shops in Fairfax and then secondly my daughter's talking to me and I answer her and I stop mid-sentence and I just stop talking because I totally forgot like what was happening I was just like yeah so okay cool and like or something you know something like it missed and she's like daddy I'm like what she's like Finish the sentence. <laughs> I'm like, okay. That's how quick we are to forget. So with that said, our prayer is to the Lord through his word, by the spirit, this sermon series, open up our eyes, God, so we can behold you again. Open up our eyes so we can see you rightly, so that we can truly know the depths of your love for us in Christ Jesus. So let me pray for us, and then we'll dive on in. Heavenly Father, our lives depend on seeing you accurately. The advancement of the gospel to the ends of the earth depends on us seeing you rightly. Salvation for some of those in this room or maybe hearing this podcast depends on seeing you rightly. So Father, we say, Come, Holy Spirit, and open our eyes so that we might have strength to comprehend the love of Jesus. Pour the Spirit into our hearts afresh and give us eyes that we can behold your glory. And as you do that, would the clutches of the demonic be loosened off of us? Would the strongholds of lies be broken, Lord God? And would you fill us with a fresh joy that's not contingent upon circumstances, but is about the presence of your Spirit, both now and forevermore? So come, Holy Spirit, would this series be life-changing for all of us? Would we have our jaw on the floor with you being a God of grace, undeserved grace and mercy shown to ruined sinners now called saints, set apart for God? We love you, Lord. Bless the preaching of your word. Fill my mouth. Help out your servant, Lord Jesus. May be your words remembered, not my own. 
would you increase and would I decrease? I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, Ephesians 1, 1 through 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ, of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now often, if you've been a Christian for a while and you study Paul's epistles, his letter to the early churches, early church, we often depersonalize them. We rush to kind of just dissect all the words and, 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 in their context and figure out what it means in the Greek and we get the scalpel out and we just love to nerd out and we're going to do that for the glory of God and we're going to take our time this sermon series. But before I start, I want us to, to, to realize and slow down before we rush to nerd out and realize that we need to realize that the Apostle Paul was a real person who really suffered immensely for the, for the cause of Christ. And it was Jesus who commissioned him. It was the resurrected Jesus that appeared to him and authorized him to go preach the mysteries of the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he actually stepped foot in around the spring of 52 AD. This real apostle Paul who's penning this letter really stepped foot in Ephesus. And believers' lives, pagan believers' lives were actually really changed by the gospel. And so there are real people really writing this letter and receiving this letter, just like the church here with maybe Pastor Nick and Transit Church members and all the memories, all the experiences, all the tears, all the joys, right? That is what this church and this letter was birthed out of, was real relationships transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to spend the majority of our time in Acts 19. So turn to Acts 19. And that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. And this is the origin story of uh, Ephesus. If you come to a Transit Church member meeting, um, part of that membership class would be hearing our story, how we got planted, who was involved, uh, what the Lord's done, so on and so forth. And so Acts 19 is essentially, if you attended a membership class in the first century, say you got PCS from Corinth to go to, uh, to the church at Ephesus in like 58 AD, and you're like, hey, attend our membership class. How did we get started? Oh, let me tell you about what happened. You would hear about Acts 19. Okay, and the three things we see in Acts 19, we're going to see this. Three things that the believers at Ephesus knew. The saints at Ephesus knew the power of the kingdom. The saints at Ephesus knew the purpose of the kingdom. And the saints at Ephesus knew the price of the kingdom. And so let's talk about Ephesians, not Ephesians. Let's talk about the city of Ephesus in the first century before we talk about the church. Ephesus in the first century was a major port city of the Roman province of Asia, which is our modern-day Turkey. It was heavily populated, roughly 300,000 citizens. Um, it was heavily visited from those uh, coming outside of Ephesus for trade and commerce and worship at uh, the temple of Artemis. And that's the major thing that, um, for our intents and purposes this morning, we're going to highlight the major thing we know historically about the city of Ephesus is that the wealth of the city and witchcraft were unholy united in an inextricable like union, if you will, okay? So the commerce of that region and the occult were uh, uh, inextricably, ba inextricably bound together because at the center of the city of Ephesus, the center of the economy was the temple of the Greek goddess Artemis, who is the goddess of a lot of things and also the goddess of fertility, and I will spare you the details of what she looked like and how she was worshipped for the sake of this being a holy gathering. And uh, this temple of Artemis and the goddess at house was so magnificent and so grand, it's considered uh, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. So you had people travel from all over the place to see uh, the seventh wonder or one of the seven wonders of the world and to worship uh, Artemis and get their Artemis swag, cool flat bill hats and flags and shrines and, and all that stuff to worship Artemis. And so um, the temple surroundings, in addition to that, we see uh, the temple surroundings were deemed an official refuge for those fearing vengeance. And the temple surroundings, the temple itself, also uh, played a central part in the economic prosperity of the city, even acting at times like a bank. So there was even banking involved uh, from the temple. And so as a result, you see a ton of uh, trades and uh, blacksmiths, craftsmen, um, crafting these silver shrines and objects that people could purchase 
so that they could worship Artemis in, you know, in their basement and just worship Artemis at home. And uh, yeah, like we're going to worship Artemis for this week-long festival. You can come and visit um, and be served by her priesthood there of, of eunuchs and virgins and all that stuff. But also, if you want to worship at home, here's an idol that you can buy that's crafted by the silversmith who makes his entire living, feeds his family off of these occult objects. And so, in addition to the temple of Artemis being the center of Ephesus, uh, there are also countless other temples dedicated to false gods in and around Ephesus where people would worship as well. It's very polytheistic. And one biblical scholar said this, the city of Ephesus was fascinated with magic and the occult, which we know is demonic as followers of Jesus. There's a real kingdom of darkness that's really present, and those who dabble in, in, in sorcery and the occult and stuff like that, there's, there's a lot of demonic activity behind that. Um, and so all that to say, the overall picture we get of the city of Ephesus is that this goddess was the guardian of the city. She was Lord. She was the source of the city's pride. We're the Ephesians who, you know, host Artemis, the great goddess. Um, she was a source of provision, and because she was a source of their economic provision, it was also, she was a source of their protection. So to be in Ephesus meant to belong to and live for Artemis. To be for the flourishing of the city of Ephesus meant to be a worshiper of Artemis. They were, they were bound together. So therefore, if you confess the lordship of another god and you denounce the lordship of Artemis, you're threatening the economy. You're destabilizing the region in a way. And if you read the rest of Acts 19, you see how that plays out, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So all that to say, there comes a day in the spring of 52 AD where this city, this pagan city, has a visitor, and his name is the Apostle Paul. Uh, and the rest is history. He starts out on his third missionary journey by making a stop to uh, Ephesus, and it's a three-year stay, roughly three years that the Apostle Paul stays loving the church, making disciples, preaching the gospel, advancing the kingdom for three years. It's beautiful, okay? So now we're going to dive into Acts 19 and do a deep dive into the origin story for um, the people at Ephesus who would have received this letter. This letter would have been written and sent during Paul's imprisonment to the believers, and they would have gathered around, and they would have read it out loud. And so I want you, as we're reading Acts 19, to imagine some of the people that Paul is writing to when he writes Ephesians. The reason we're talking about their origin story is I want you to know that some of the people say, that are gathered, say, say this was the public reading for the first time of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Ephesus, those gathering are in this story in Acts 19. Those that would be present are those that are in Acts 19, okay? So I'm trying to make that connection. So the first point is this. The saints at Ephesus knew the power of the kingdom. Look at Acts 19, 1 through 7. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, and that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. Excuse me. 12 men in all. And so what I want to highlight here is from day one of the origin story of how the church at Ephesus started, it started with the Apostle Paul with 12 disciples that he laid his hands on. Yes, he baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus, and he prayed for them, and they received the Holy Spirit, and then they spoke in tongues and started prophesying. And I don't want to get us tied up on the signs of the manifestation of the Spirit, but what I am going to say is this, is that the Apostle Paul knew it was so critical for believers to understand the essential empowerment of the Holy Spirit for all of life and ministry, that he wouldn't move an inch with these disciples before teaching them and training them and introducing them to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Like, that's just what we see. The, the, the core group, you know, every church plant has a core group that gets started. The core group that the Apostle Paul rolled with were 12 men that were speaking in tongues and prophesying. He got 12 Pentecostals with him to preach that, to, to start the... The city of Ephesus. And, and if, if uh, the scripture said something else, I would say something else. But this is what we see in the scriptures. And what I want to highlight there is this. The Ephesian church, from its very beginning stages, please hear this, 
knew nothing of a dead and lifeless and powerless Christian faith. They knew nothing of a Christian faith without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And in contrast to that, they knew, they received a glorified, they, they received a, 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 a real resurrected king reigning and present by his spirit and moving mightily in their midst. And so they knew immediately the critical nature, the essential nature of being empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill the mission of Christ. That you can't do it in your own flesh. You have to walk by the Spirit. And the Spirit will manifest, not with everyone, not everyone's going to speak in tongues, not everyone's going to prophesy, but everyone has the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will manifest and make himself known and advance the kingdom through his yielded church. And so Paul doesn't move an inch with these guys before he makes this introduction. He says, before you're going to follow Jesus and follow me to advance the kingdom uh, to a, a demonic stronghold of Ephesus, there's someone I want you to meet. There's someone I want you to rely on. There's someone I want you to lean into. There's someone I want you to talk to. There's someone I want you to draw strength from. There's someone that I need you to be yielded to, to be equipped to do what God has called you to do. And so all that to say... We see in the very beginning stages of the core group that the Apostle Paul had with these 12 disciples that when he writes the following verses in his letter to them, that they, they understood what he was talking about when he says this in Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And often we stop there and we, and we, and we rightly so highlight the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. But then Paul includes this line at the end, according to the power at work within us. Ephesian church, you saw firsthand, we're going to talk more about it, about the power of the Spirit that fills us. And that what the Apostle Paul in Ephesians wants to do is say, don't forget, I want you to raise your expectation of what the Holy Spirit inside of you is capable, to, capable of doing in and through your life. He's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power, the indwelling presence of God within us. Ephesians 5.18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. How do you uh, loosen the shackles of addiction and all the other pleasures that the world offers you? It's by the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's by the fellowship of the Spirit of Christ within you. Singing psalms, praising his name, seeking his face in prayer, and you get that adoration, that affection for Jesus, and the Spirit begins to loosen strongholds in your life. Ephesians 6, 16 through 18, the Apostle Paul says this, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Watch this, 18, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Praying at all times in the Spirit. That, hey, Paul didn't just introduce them to the Holy Spirit for them to forget and to quench the Holy Spirit and say, that was really weird. All of a sudden, I started speaking in tongues, and that was weird. I don't want to do that. No, no he didn't. They didn't they, that, that wasn't it. It was praying at all times in the Spirit, which is what? Constantly acknowledging the presence of God in us and among us as a body of believers. Constantly posturing ourselves to pray in the Spirit and saying, God, you are present here. The transcendent, immaterial Spirit of the living God, you are present here, and we want to be yielded to you. And we want to pray in the Spirit, stay, stay in fellowship and step and walk by the Spirit, okay? So the saints at Ephesus knew nothing of a church devoid of the empowerment and the essential nature of the empowerment of the work of the Spirit uh, in, their, in their midst. So they knew the power of the kingdom. The second thing we see is that the saints at Ephesus that Paul's writing to knew the purpose of the kingdom. Let's look at verses 8 through 12 in Acts 19. And he entered the synagogue... And for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Remember that, the kingdom of God. But when some, uh, but when some become, became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before their congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia, those uh, throughout Asia Minor, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now watch this, verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, 
and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. That's wild, right? I'm sorry, that's crazy. Um, that picture we get is hard for us to even fathom, right? I mean, one word, handkerchiefs, right? And like those having some kind of unique manifestation of the Spirit's power, that's how much glory was resting on the Apostle Paul, that they were just passing these things out, and then people were getting demons cast out of them. And so here's the deal. We see Paul reasoning in the synagogue, preaching the gospel, the Messiah who came, who was crucified on the cross for the sins of men. There's only one way to salvation. You are separated from God. You are at war with God. You do not have peace with God. You need to receive the king's sacrifice on the cross for your sins. And when you do that, you get peace with God. You get restoration. You get forgiveness. You get restoration. He was preaching. He was reasoning in the synagogue from the Old Testament scriptures about who this Messiah was. He was reasoning uh, in the city centers in Ephesus. So why do we need all the weird stuff? right? Why the diseases leaving and people being healed? Why evil spirits crying out and, and, and demons, whatever? Why all that weird stuff? What's that all about? And what it's all about is it's about, it's about the gospel of the kingdom of God. The gospel that the apostle Paul preached was the gospel that Jesus Christ preached. Yes, and the gospel is this. Ephesians 1-2, we read it. Grace and peace to you. That's the gospel of the kingdom. Grace, God's riches and kindness and forgiven for you at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. You're forgiven in Christ Jesus all of your sins, placed on his shoulders off of yours, and he's paid your debt of sin so you are clear. Grace, undeserved mercy and love shown to you. And then the follow-up is peace. And that word peace connotates shalom. And what shalom is is not just like, a feeling of peace. It's relational peace between us and God and all of creation and God. It's a, rest, it's a restoring work. That peace is shalom, which is the, the restoration of all of God's crea creation back to God's original design for why he created it. It's, it's, it's everything working the way it should work. It's everything uh, being uh, whole and healed and, and all that. Stuff. So we're, we're forgiven, and yet we're also being made new, and also one day will be fully made new in a new heavens, and a new earth. Yes, the gospel is the forgiveness of sins, and yes, the gospel is King Jesus restoring all things and the kingdom of heaven invading this earth and reversing the effects of the curse of sin and the fall. I've shared this quote with you for a, a, a while. I'm going to share it again until it gets old, and I don't think it ever will, so just get used to it. Uh, here's a really great quote that perfectly encapsulates what I'm talking about. When Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, he is driving out of creation the powers of destruction and is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The lordship of God to which the healings witness restores creation to health. Jesus' heal I love this last line. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. And so to return to that question I asked at first, why all the weird stuff at Ephesus? It's not weird, it's beautiful. Why all the unnatural, supernatural stuff? No, no, that's natural. That's the way God intended it to be, where there wasn't any presence of the demonic. There is no death, there is no disease, there is no sin. Jesus came, and he's reigning and ruling over all those things. And when you and I, he teaches us to pray, one of the first things he says is pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. Unqualified, not a little bit, not just this much, let your kingdom come, and then you want a qualification let as on earth as it is in heaven. And so when you're praying that prayer, you're saying, Lord, let the reality of heaven where there is no sin, where there is no death, where there is no disease, where there is no demonic presence, would that, would you, King Jesus, come and enforce that rule? And that's what we're seeing in uh, Ephesus. It's an invasion of heaven. This is like a, this is like a, a D-Day storming the beaches of a demonic stronghold in a pagan city. That's what this is. It's the kingdom of God breaking in to the kingdom of darkness and hope coming and healing coming and love coming and salvation coming. And wherever King Jesus uh, goes and manifests his presence and enforces his rule, we see lives are saved and transformed by the gospel, the work he's done through his death and resurrection. 
and, and, and his kingly reign, we see that the sick are healed and demons leave, and that's an inbreaking of the kingdom. We live in this tension between the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, but it's not fully arrived yet. So we will see the kingdom break in, but we won't always see that kingdom until it's consummated in glory. And so um, the Ephesian church, they get, it was a school of hard knocks for them, right? They, uh, this is how, this is their origin story. So when we're reading the letter to uh, the Ephesian church, this is their background. There were people present who had demons cast out of them. There were people present who were going to die of disease until people prayed for them, and they got healed. Those are, that's who's receiving this letter. Those who personally have experienced the power at work uh, in the body of believers and through the body of, of believers. And so um, Ephesians 1 through 20 through 23 takes on a whole different meaning in this context. And I'm going to start kind of mid-sentence because Paul's just uh, praying here for like 13 verses. He says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What scholars, biblical scholars, uh, talk about is one of the reasons Paul emphasizes in uh, the letter to the Ephesian church uh, so much the authority of Jesus, the reign of Jesus, where he's seated above all uh, uh, rulers, like demonic forces of evil, is because of the pagan influence, because of Artemis. And so what Paul, the, the point that Paul is making is the name that is over Artemis, the name that is over the demons that have been harassing those present, the name that is over the disease there. His name is Jesus. He's seated on the throne, and his kingdom is here, and his kingdom is coming, and there's no one that can stop him. That kingdom is coming. That kingdom is advancing. And so in regards to the Asbury, uh, quote-unquote, revival, um, you know, there's lots of talk out there like uh, people are saying, um, and I agree with them, that they're really excited that this is a somber event, there's no flair, there's no excitement, there's no political uh, influence tied to it, there's no real denominational influence, there's no celebrities tied to it. It's like a no-name kind of quote-unquote, I'll say quote-unquote revival. It's a move of God. And um, as I was researching this week, uh, somebody done manifested a demon in that revival uh, during one of the meetings and got a demon cast out of her. And I read that and you go online and people are all like, oh my gosh, this is totally false teaching, blah, 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 all stuff. It's like, no, it's not. That's a sign of the kingdom of God coming. That's a beautiful thing. And so when we see and hear about, in a healthy way, in a good way, people getting free from demonic oppression, it should well up compassion in our hearts for those individuals saying, thank you, Jesus, that that person, you have no idea what they've been wrestling with. We've heard being in ministry for a while and also praying for people who have demonic oppression in their lives, uh, people who are just getting assaulted at night. They got scars on their body to show where like, stuff's scratching them and, and, and just the harassment and the, the compulsive thoughts and tendencies, all that stuff, that it wells up compassion in us to want to see the afflicted set free. And just like Jesus when he was teaching in the synagogue and demons would manifest, where, the, where God manifests his presence you will see things start to shake a little bit. And I think the sign that this is a move of God is that happened. That's my vote. And pastorally, if that kind of raises concerns for you, please come and talk to me, and I'll just read the Gospel of Mark to you and show you that this is all biblical and is good because uh, the continuation of deliverance ministry has nothing to do with the closing of the canon of Scripture and has everything to do whether Jesus Christ is Lord over the demonic or not. And if Jesus Christ is king over the demonic and we are commissioned to advance that kingdom, then you better well believe that you and I should be cheering on things that we see when people in a healthy way, in a good way, there's lots of bad ways, but in a healthy and good way are getting set free from demonic oppression because that is the sound, that is the sign that the kingdom of God is at hand. The verbatim, the words of Jesus, I place the finger of God upon you and I cast out demons and you, 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 uh, uh, you indict me by casting them out in the name of Beelzebub. No, it's a sign that God is here. It's a sign, it's an evidence of the kingdom of God. And so when I read that story and everyone else was losing their minds when I'm studying the Asbury uh, revival, I'm saying that's a sign that God's presence is there. And those demons were going, and that chick got set free, the, the, the lady that was manifesting demons. And so that's what we, um, the Ephesian church, all I have to say is they had a right understanding about the lordship of Jesus, where he is seated, and what that actually means in their day-to-day -day life at Ephesus, okay? And then the, the uh, second verse I want to read to you about them understanding the purpose of the kingdom 
of reversing the, the curse of sin and storming the gates of hell and, 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 and bringing in a kingdom of hope and of healing and of freedom and of peace and of salvation, Ephesians 6.12 says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The believers at Ephesus were no strangers to demonic warfare. They were no strangers to spiritual warfare. They understood uh, the purpose of the kingdom, that we were birthed, they were birthed in battle, and they were birthed for battle. The present tense, Ephesians 6.12, is that we are those that wrestle, we battle, we're currently battling against forces of darkness, and we are called to uh, advance against the gates of hell that will not prevail against the church. Uh, can't wait to get into Ephesians 6. And lastly, and I'll wrap up with this, um, point number three, the saints at Ephesus knew the price of the kingdom, the price of the kingdom, verses 13 through 20. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Not a good start. Don't try that. Okay. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But watch this. But then the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This is in the origin story of Ephesus. All right, it's in your Bibles. Don't, anyways, okay, 17, moving on. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. The name of King Jesus was extolled how? Through his power over demonic forces. Those powers even recognizing, saying, out of those evil spirits, saying, I recognize Jesus and I, and I recognize his apostle Paul, but you I don't recognize. That the spirits that were manifesting were yielded to one name, and his name was Jesus, who is Lord. And many of those who were now believers, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them. And they found it to, uh, that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord, the gospel of the kingdom, continued to increase and prevail mightily. I love the picture we get. I think this is one of the most epic scenes of repentance we see of new believers in the book of Acts. What they do is all of these um, uh, uh, pagan Gentiles who were into the witchcraft of their day and age, they all gather publicly, because they're not gathering indoors to burn some stuff, so they gather publicly, and they're bringing their books, they're bringing their shrines, anything that has anything associated with Artemis or the occult, and they pile it as high as it can go, and they douse it in kerosene, and they set it on fire. And they set it on fire. And the smoke of that fire was, I mean, probably, you could see it maybe from all of Ephesus. And so people would gather around saying, there's a house on fire. What's going around? Whenever you see a lot of smoke in a neighborhood, what do you do? You, what's going on? Let's go check it out. And so all the non-Christians, it says, it says here in the text, they did it in the sight of all. Everybody saw the line in the sand that new believers were drawing. They said, Artemis is not God. Jesus is Lord. And we are now burning any association we've had with idols and false gods publicly and forever. And so we're turning. This is what repentance looks like. I no longer serve this. I serve Jesus. When they profess Jesus as Lord, it means immediately there is nobody else as Lord. There is no other God we're going to serve. And surely not Artemis. And the cost of that pile of burning occult objects, the modern day value was six million dollars six million dollars now i mean that could have built a, could have been a building fund campaign right they could hey let's not burn this like let's let's sell this off back into the economy sure we're not doing it anymore but we're gonna we're gonna keep it in ephesus and we're gonna take the money and we're gonna get like a massive bill no no it's like it's like in this day and age it's we pile six million dollars of cash and just set it on fire and the citizens of Ephesus see that, and they're saying, that is offensive. You're ruining our country and our, our nation, our, our city, Ephesus. That's an affront to us and to, uh, it's, it's, it's intolerant, it's offensive, so on and so forth. They did it in the sight of the citizens of Ephesus who weren't followers of Jesus. So what I'm getting at is immediately what these believers at Ephesus knew is that there was a price that you had to pay to follow Jesus. 
It's not Jesus and, it's not Jesus and Artemis. It's not Jesus and occult witchcraft. It's Jesus and everything Jesus requires of me and tells me to do because he's Lord, I'm servant. He saved me from hell by his blood on the cross, shed for me. I belong to him forever. I am a saint, which means I belong to God. A saint is someone set apart for God, meaning I belong to God, I belong to someone else, and I belong for some other purpose than the purposes of this world and the purpose of Artemis. So they knew immediately the cost of following Jesus. And the response of the rest of Ephesus, I don't have time to read it, but the, the response of, of uh, the believers at Ephesus, not the believers, the non-Christians at Ephesus, was that an entire riot broke out. The city went nuts, and there was a theater that seated estimates of 12,000 to 50,000 people. It was like a football stadium. They dragged some of Paul's disciples there, and a riot breaks out. And for two hours, they scream, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And it was uh, the citizens' way, and maybe the demonic's way, of trying to push back what was happening. And that they had enough, and their, uh, Demetrius, one of the uh, silversmiths, started this right and saying, our economy is at stake, and the pride of Artemis, our goddess, is at stake, and we need to counteract this. They were in the middle of a battle and war. They knew, the believers at Ephesus knew, that there was a cost to be paid. It was a financial cost, where they just lost money, and there was a, uh, a cost to their reputation, and there was a cost to their safety. That um, this wasn't a social media mob. This was a literal mob that was dragging him by the neck into the theater. And by the grace of God, uh, nobody was harmed. But immediately, in, in roughly from 52 to 55 AD, when this church was birthed, while Paul was there, that was their experience. It was warfare. It was power. It was truth. It was love. And these, this is how this church came into existence. They understood the price. And more than the price that they had to pay, they understood what they received in Christ Jesus. And what they received uh, greatly surpassed anything, any cost that they could give. And I'll conclude with this band. You can come on up. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 says this. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What we learn in our text is that they could measure the cost. They measured the cost that they would sacrifice for following Jesus. He said it's like 50,000 pieces of silver. It's $6 million. They measured that cost. And you and I on this side of the grave, we can measure all the costs that we might have to pay to follow Jesus. I lost that friend. I got fired from that job. Uh, I might lose all my money. I might, I might lose my life on the mission field if God calls me to that. We can measure. It's quantitative. We can, we can measure that, the money, the time, the pain, the death, all the sacrifices we can make to follow Jesus. But what you and I can never measure is that which we have received in Christ as a result. That's immeasurable. That never comes to an end. Can you measure the value of eternal life? Can you measure the value of eternal mercy, eternal love, eternal peace? You can't measure it. It's immeasurable. Has no limit, has no end, is imperishable. Nothing can change what you've received in Christ Jesus. Nothing can tarnish it, nothing can cheapen it, nothing can take it away from you because it's blood, it's blood bought. It's purchased by his hands, not your own hands. And so today, posture your hearts to receive communion. I'm wrapping up here. The last thing I'll conclude with is this, is that all of us on a daily basis, we put Jesus on the scale of other things that he's calling us to do, other things we have to lay down. And so for some of us, when it comes to being open and vocal about what Jesus has done and sharing him, it's we put our reputation and we put Jesus, on, our reputation on this side of the scale and Jesus Christ and his worth and value on this side. And we say, which one wins? Or we say comfort and safety. Oh, I don't want to do this thing. I don't want to give money. I don't want to give of my time. I don't want to do whatever it is. And so we place him in the scales. And what Paul is saying is you can place all of your life, all of your money, all of your time, all of your suffering, all of your pain right here. And Jesus is going to tip the scales. He's worth all of it. And let me conclude with this in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, and then we'll pray. I hope this encourages you. Let the word of God encourage, encourage you today. Let this word encourage you today wherever you're at. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, 
our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, remember talking about looking, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of this letter, for the gift of Paul's life and the Ephesian believers, God. That 2,000 years, yes, this letter was written to them, but it's written to us as well. Thank you, Lord, for the encouragement. Thank you, Lord, for all the work that you're going to do in this sermon series. And Lord God, will we not come to hear good sermons? Will we not hear just to learn a book? Will we come to uh, uh, grow closer to you, to see you more rightly, Lord God? So give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to know and love and obey. And come and have your way, Lord Jesus. Show us, Lord God, not our sin necessarily, but show us how greater you are than everything else that's distracting us from you. And I pray, Lord, that as we prepare our hearts for communion, God, that you, Holy Spirit, would come and show us Jesus and show us where on those scales where we keep trying to measure the worth of following Jesus to the things of this earth that are passing away. And Lord, show us the immeasurable greatness. Give us strength to comprehend how good you are and how kind you are and what is our inheritance forever, Lord God. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well, we respond to the preaching of God's word by taking of communion. Uh, if you need communion elements, there's some in uh, the hallway for you. And uh, we are changed by what we've been shown, by what we've been shown. And this meal, we do this in remembrance of Jesus and what he's already done for us, that God has moved first on our behalf, that we come to a meal where we don't need to prepare. We don't have to bring bread. We don't have to bring wine to this meal. It's all provided. Jesus Christ has provided everything we need, and we simply respond to what we've been shown. His broken body on our behalf, on his behalf, his shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And so we celebrate the work of Christ today, all eyes on Jesus today. The glorious riches of our inheritance are encapsulated in this meal. Table fellowship with saints and their Savior forever. And so uh, we'll sing a few songs, uh, and as you feel led, uh, take the communion elements, and I'll close this with a benediction.